As we've been going through this series on grace, if you've learned something about grace, just put your hand up. Let me see your hand. If you've learned something that you did not know about grace, put your hand up. Sure, sure. I, I've learned quite a bit as we've gone through this series on grace. And last week we heard uh, Pastor Pablo uh, share about uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. And he, he shared uh, where Paul was talking about that he would not boast in his accomplishments or boast in his merit, but he would boast in his weakness so that the grace of God would abound. Um, and so uh, Paul, Pastor Paul dropped a really, really good truth last week. If you were here, I encourage you to, if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and watch the live. But uh, it was a point where he said that God's grace was sufficient for him. And, Paul, and he said that if there was a point where there was nothing else in your favor, if there was nothing else going for you, uh, and all you had was God's grace, his good intentions, his good inclinations towards you, that that was enough. How, how powerful a truth that is for someone who's going through something or that you need to hold on to when you're in the midst of about to go through something. This is especially interesting that Paul would be the one to say that, because before Paul was Paul the Apostle, he was this guy known as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus, he was, he, was born to, he was born a Roman citizen to Jewish parents, and he became a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were this group of people of an ancient religious sect that they distinguished themselves by strict observance of the, of the written and the traditional law. And they commonly held a belief and a pretensions of superior sanctity over everyone. Let me make that plain. So these were some real self-righteous folks. Like these people were the kind of people that look down your, their nose at you because they are doing everything right and you just can't get it right. This is how these people operated. And Paul, the apostle before, as he was Saul, was one of the guys who was the, the illest at this. He, he was the best. He prided himself in being the best, the, the best of the best of the best of keeping the law. And so, you know, uh, for him to be in this place to say that he would not boast in his merit is really powerful. He got to a point that he was so upset at the movement that Jesus was doing that he uh, got to the point where he actually got uh, licensed from the state to be able to murder Christians. He didn't care if it was women, children, it didn't matter. He was out to eradicate this movement of Jesus and his followers. And the scriptures tell us in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 9 that, that this was the situation that was going on. But it was until a fateful day later in Acts 9 that he encounters the Spirit of God on his way to Damascus that God blinds him and he experiences the fullness of Jesus Christ's grace on him. And it's because of this that later in the scriptures, Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners. He said, if y'all sin, I do sin better than y'all too. I'm the best sinner out here. And so it was at this point that he encountered the grace of God that it turned him to be able to become the apostle Paul. And, and, and he went on to write the majority of the New Testament. And one of those books in the New Testament that he wrote was the book of Romans. So please allow me to set the context of what was going on in Romans at the time. As Paul is writing this letter to a church, he has not visited the church of Rome yet, but he's writing to a church that has been established, and we have going on in this church, we have some Jews and we have some Gentiles or non-Jews. 
And so they're in this church together now in Rome, and Paul's writing to them because there's some confusion about how they're going to worship together. There were different cultures. There were different understandings of what was clean and unclean from the Jewish folks and what the Gentiles were operating in. And so Paul's writing them to help them work through their stuff. And I can't help but think that these writings that he wrote to that church in Rome and how, how applicable they are to us as a church here today, not just the journey, but God's church in general. And as we step into Romans 12, we make a turn in our, our study uh, because we've been studying what we would say the theoretical understandings of what grace is, what God has done, what it means for us, what it has done for us in the spiritual realm, what, is, what, what, has, what has gone on because of the grace of Jesus Christ. But in chapter 12 here, Paul makes a turn to stop looking at what we call the orthodoxy of Scripture into the orthopraxy or the proper uh, practice of this grace. And so as we look in chapter 12, we pick up right here, and he says here, if you've got it, say amen. All right, so y'all there, chapter 12, we're all there together. And so he says here, picking up chapter 12, verse 1, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And as you read that, you may have said, listen, Ron, you didn't say anything about grace in there. You're very observant. But I believe in these scriptures that there are a, uh, keys to growing in grace. There are, uh, throughout the text, a spirit of grace that exists in that. And so now as Paul begins to write this, it's his pattern to start a letter with a strong doctrinal statement and then go into some exhortations of what Christian living should look like. We've, we've seen that, as we talked about, through Romans 1 through 11, as Paul begs Christians, he begs us to live in a certain way in light of what God has done for us. We see Paul laying out what the implication of God's grace are. And one of the most important things we have to understand is that this grace that Paul's been laying out is not a human attribute. This grace is an attribute of God. It is part of the manifold of God's love. This means that God deals with us not on the basis of our merit or our worthiness, not what we deserve, but he deals with us simply according to our need. Let me make it plain. He deals with us on the basis of his goodness and generosity toward us, not based on our merit or what we deserve. In humanity, especially our Western culture, we put much emphasis on merit. Now, I'm not discrediting merit. I'm not saying that. But the way that God operates in this grace, we have to understand it's a little bit different. See, we, we, we operate in a space that says you get what you deserve. You, we base much of what we will do for someone on if they deserve it or not. Just recently, I was here in the car, and I was stopped at a red light that that uh, happens to all of us, and there was someone standing there with a sign that said they needed help. And I had, a, had, a, I had an inclination to, to bless this person, but then in the moment I begin to wrestle with, does he really deserve what I'm about to get? What is he going to do with this? 
And it also in that moment, just to this stranger that I did not know, I thought, how often do we do that, not to strangers, but to those folks that we even love, to those folks that are even sitting next to us in the pews here this evening? But church, this is what Paul's calling us to. He's saying it's not something that we can pull on, but we have to actually follow God's example of this. And if we look at God's example of this, if you, you don't have to turn there, but in Romans 5, 8, he says, while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die. See, the grace of God, he deals with us on the basis of his generosity, his beneficence, and through the power of his spirit, he permits us the ability to do the same to others. Because of this, we have to recognize and that this grace must be sourced by God, our Heavenly Father. A passage in Luke 18, 18 through 19, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you all the urban version of this, okay? So Jesus is chilling in this. If you read it, it's not going to say chilling. But, but he's chilling, and a religious leader comes upon him, and he says, he says to him, he says, Good teacher, what should I do to, inter- to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't really answer the man's question. Well, he does, but as is typical with Jesus, he answers his question with a question. And he says to him, he says, why do you call me good? There is none good but the Father. And so this goodness and generosity that Jesus is even operating out of when he was here on earth, he recognizes that it's sourced solely by his connection to the Father. Church, it is important that we understand that we do not have the capacity in all our efforts to access this type of grace on our own. It must be sourced by the Spirit of God. Paul says at the beginning of this passage, I beseech you. He's asking us fervently and urgently to do something. He, he, he's, he's almost begging. He, recently, we went to Cape Cod, Sharice and I and the family, and we took my two sons and we entered a general store, and they had a penny candy counter. You ever, people familiar with a penny candy counter? Yeah. And so when my sons saw it, they began to beseech us to get them some candy. Uh, They were asking urgently and fervently to be able to get some candy. This wasn't a passive like, hey, hey, dad, you know, think maybe I can get some of those gummy bears? No, this was like, we need to get the gummy bear. Like, he was urgently asking us. This was what Paul is doing here at the beginning of this passage. He's imploring us to do what follows. And in this, Paul appeals to our will. It is in this that God calls us to make a choice about the way that we are going to live for him. His grace that has been given to us, it gives us the option to no longer to choose to be conformed to this world's ways, but to seek to allow his spirit to live and flow through us. So in order to be able to operate this way, church, we're going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to sacrifice our will for the will of the Father. And in this way, we understand that to grow in grace, that grace, y'all, is going to require some sacrifice. We don't get too many amens on that. But grace is going to require sacrifice. And I think it's important before I go any further that we have a shared understanding of what this sacrifice he's talking about means here. I don't want anyone walking out talking about, I've got to sacrifice myself and, 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 and Pastor Ron's off the chain. But the word used in the Greek here is thusia, 
And literally, it means victim, but a more expanded definition means to place a person or thing at one's disposal. To place a person or thing at one's disposal. Some real, Lord, have your way with me, not mine type stuff. So we must let the desire of our Father overtake our desires. This, this, is, this is real cool because that means you might not have a desire to do it, but we're saying that, God, your desire, whatever that is, will supersede even what my desire is. Paul says, sacrifice our bodies to the Lord. Like I said, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying there. And so the idea of sacrifice would have been a well understood to the people of Paul's day. Ritualistic sacrifice was both secular and Christian at the time. But as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable sacrifice, Paul has typified the type of sacrifice by putting some parameters on it. And through this, we see that this sacrifice must be a sacrifice that not is just dead and done, but this sacrifice is one that must remain alive and active, church. First century people uh, would have understood this, and so when he said a living sacrifice, uh, it's, it's because it's brought alive to the altar, but what Paul is saying that it is living also because it stays alive at this altar. It's ongoing. It's something that we must continuously do. It's not a one-time thing. So to operate in this grace, we're going to have to continuously sacrifice. Sometimes we get happy we did it one time. Look what I did. But this is something that God is saying that we must continually operate in. Spiritually speaking, uh, our bodies are brought to God's altar. And it is best to see the body here as a reference to our entire being. Whatever we say about our spirit, our soul, our flesh, our mind, we know that all of those exist within our body. Amen? So when Paul's saying present your bodies, he means he wants you, not just your work. Church, it's critical because uh, how many know that it's possible that you can do all kinds of work for God but never really give him yourself? But look, he's saying, listen, for what God has done, this sacrifice, this living sacrifice, this is the baseline. This is your reasonable service. This is the jumping off point of where we should all begin. If we want to grow in grace, then we have to be willing to put our desires to the side in light of what is the need of our brothers and sisters, his people. The people that are sitting next to us, the people that are in your home, the people that are in your workplace, in your classes. Now, why would we choose to do such a thing? I'm so happy you asked because I have an answer. <laughs> yeah, this is why. God is gracious, so we're gracious, but how are we to do this? Well, we choose to live graciously by allowing God's word to change how we think. So we are not conforming to this world any longer. Paul tells us to no longer be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In there is a warning if you catch it. The warning is that this world system, this popular culture or, or, or popular manner of thinking that is in rebellion against God, it's going to try to conform us. It's going to work to try to conform us in such a way and to its ungodly pattern. 
And that is something that Paul is saying that we have to resist. By no longer conforming to the ways of this world, by, by leading with grace, we are bringing the rules and the regulations of God's kingdom into this present age. So what am I saying? I'm, when we operate in grace, the world system doesn't really flow like that. And so when we operate in grace, we're bringing kingdom practices into this present world. And so we have to be very aware of what God has tasked us with as Christians, the power that he has given us, the, uh, the, the, the ability that we have as his spirit works through us to be ambassadors to him in the midst of this present age. Now, the battleground between conforming to this world and being transformed within is in the mind of the believer. And as Christians, Paul's telling us that we have to think differently. Now, the challenge for some of us, well, especially me, if you've taken the Myers-Briggs test, anybody? Yeah, taking that. I got an F. I'm a feeler. So now y'all know something about me. So when something happens, initially I get in my feelings, and my feelings can be what dictate what I do. I have any feelers in here? Okay, don't make me be alone up here. And so uh, our feelings can get in the way. Here, here's the challenge for those that are feelers, that the life based on feeling says, how do I feel today? How do I feel about my job? How do I feel about my wife or my husband? How do I feel about worship? How do I feel about the preacher? This life of feeling will never know the transforming power of God because it ignores the renewing of the mind. Now, we have some doers, too. I have doers in here. It's like, I'm just going to get it done. I'm not worried about what I'm feeling. My doers, throw your hands up. Doers, just getting it done. I love you guys. You guys help because we get caught in our feelings, and y'all are like, let's just keep going. We need you. You're a gift. But here's the challenge for us as doers. Doers say, don't give me your theology. Just tell me what to do. Give me the four points. Give me the seven keys for that, and this is what I will do. But the life of doing will never know the transforming power of God because it ignores also the renewing of the mind. Now understand, God is never against the principles of feeling and doing. As a matter of fact, he is a power, he's powerful and passionate in feeling, and God commands us to be doers. But yet feelings and doing are completely insufficient foundations for Christian life. The first question cannot be, how do I feel? The first question cannot be, what do I do? Rather, the question must be, what is true here? What does God's word say about the situation? How am I to be a conduit of his grace in the midst of what's happening? And when we do that, we are growing in grace by choosing to live graciously. To grow in grace, to be gracious, is a choice, church. Christ's church lives graciously based on the preceding grace bestowed upon us. Grace is our duty, church, because we have been redeemed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all together his, and for his sake we are debtors to all men to do good to all men. 
as Paul puts it in the passage here, that this is our reasonable service. Look, if, if, if I were to uh, be in some, if, if Pastor Lou was to be in some sort of medical situation in which he needed a kidney and I had the match, but for me to give the kidney to him would require my life, I think that we would understand that it would be, it would be Lou's reasonable service if I were to ask him, would you make sure that my wife and my family are okay, right? You would say that, that's reasonable for him to do. That's what, that's, what, that's what Paul's saying here. Our reasonable service is to live this way because of what God has done through Jesus Christ for us. This makes things clear for us. Because we don't extend grace based on how someone's going to respond to it. We extend grace because we have received it in such great measure. The reason we give grace is because how much grace was given to us. The motivation for us to be gracious is because what God has already done through Jesus Christ. We, we look to the grace given to us through Jesus Christ at the cross and its implications, past, present, and future, as the motivation for us to live graciously. Now, I know I'm amongst some holy folk in here, and, and, and you guys all get it right, so I'm just going to talk about me, because sometimes I get this messed up. Sometimes I'm looking to give grace based on what sort of reciprocity is going to come from the person who's receiving it. Or better yet, in the form of some sort of spiritual pat on the back from, from Jesus. But, but what Paul is telling us is that that is wholly incorrect. It's wholly incorrect for us to extend grace on that. It is based on something that we have no control of. It, it, we should base our gracious living, our ability to be gracious with each other because of what God has done for us. And in this way, we become a conduit for God's grace in the present age. And then in this conduit, we will prove the will of God to be worthy. The will of God is for all to be saved, for all to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The love he has for them and that none should perish. In church, you ready for this? That we are carriers of that grace message. Because of what we have received, we grow in grace when we lead with grace. We are not just receptacles of grace, but we are also distributors of God's will for the earth. That, listen, that's powerful. We, we are not just recipients of it, but we are the distributors. We have the unique vocation of being the distributors of God's grace here in the earth. In the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the judgment, in the midst of all the justice-seeking, litigious nature of our humanity, God has given all of us a message of grace. Now, theoretically, when we study Scripture and allow it to transform our thinking of how God loves me, then in turn, I can turn around and extend that same grace. See, Paul was teaching cognitive behavioral therapy way back in the first century. <laughs> through, through, through study of the scriptures, we get what God has done, and for it, it will change how we think. 
And as my thinking changes, guess what? My behavior changes. Now, we grow in grace practically because I'm choosing to bestow it when someone doesn't deserve it. The moment that I begin to justify a reason why someone deserves something, then it ceases to be grace. The moment that I justify a reason to extend it, it ceases to be grace. But church, when we allow the spirit of the living God to flow through us, then we may feel like they don't deserve it, but then we will still choose to be gracious. We will choose to be gracious practically because I get to experience in some measure what God did for me. Because as a sinner, God sent his only son, Jesus, to die for me. And that church is amazing grace. That church, that type of grace is attractive. And as we're growing in grace, church, it becomes simultaneously the lubricant and the adhesive for our brother-sister relationships. Right here, you would say amen. amen. Church, God is not looking for someone to uphold a code book and perform all of its duties. This, this, that's, that's not what he's looking for in this space. What he's looking for is for someone who is willing to allow themselves to be transformed by the understanding of the grace bestowed to them, that they may choose to live graciously here amongst ourselves first and then to the world. This type of grace is the grace that can attract, transform, and motivate God's church in this present age. This is the kind of grace that wins. So, so repeat with me, repeat with me this truth, and I'm going to wrap it up right here. In 2 Peter 3.18, and then we'll have Maranatha come up. I'll pray. We'll have Maranatha come up, and then they'll, they'll play us out. But, but this is what we should be doing, church. 2 Peter 3.18. Read it with me. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for you. We are so thankful for the grace that you've bestowed on us, Lord. Lord, you looked at us in our desperate need, and not because of what we've done, but because of who you are, your goodness and gentleness and graciousness, you sent your son to die for us. Father, because of that, we recognize our desperate need for it. And in that, Father, we ask that you allow us to be transformed in our thinking, that we may become conduits of that same grace to each other and then to the world. Lord, use your spirit to work through us, to transform us, to make us your radiant bride in the midst of everything that's going on. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.